Hello, this is Cody Weston with Humanity Against Disease. Thank you for joining us for part two of our interview with psychiatrist Dr. Adam Rosano. We'll be wrapping up our discussion of psychiatry from the perspective of trainees. Just a disclaimer that the opinions stated here are our own personal opinions and do not necessarily represent the views of our institution. If you missed part one, you can check that out over at our Facebook page at Humanity Against Disease. You can also find us at our website, humanityagainstdisease.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter as at Against Disease. And of course, you can find all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever pods are cast. question for you is, what then are the different tools in a psychiatrist toolkit available to help them help other people with mental illness? You've talked a little bit about the different places where people can get treatment, ranging from the office, these intensive outpatient programs, places where they can get therapy, the emergency room, inpatient, uh, psych hospitals. What are the different tools that people use, you know, ranging from drugs, therapy, um, other treatments, what's available? So first off, starting off with tools for diagnosis, it's almost entirely clinical interview and speaking to family members. One complaint we get a lot from patients is they say like, I want to know what I have and what's wrong with me. And they'll say, some people have said I have schizoaffective disorder. Other people have said bipolar. And the truth is to meet criteria for those disorders, we are talking about usually an illness that has a natural history on a time course of years with episodic presentations. I can give you a best guess based on my clinical experience, but I often can't definitively tell somebody what they have. Usually I'm more focused on what we do now to achieve the best outcome. Yeah, and you need to know the, you have to know the time course and the circumstances before you can even make a guess sometimes. I mean, one of the topics I just received some teaching on in women's mental health is that in the period postpartum, if someone turns psychotic out of the blue, it's far, far, far more likely to represent manic illness, like a bipolar disorder type picture than it is to represent schizophrenia. As you're saying, Adam, the same, the exact same symptoms in a snapshot could easily represent intoxication, withdrawal, delirium, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder, and probably about five other things, depression with psychotic features. So it's not something that can be teased apart in an acute situation in a lot of cases. Yeah. And then in terms of treatment, um, you can kind of break that down broadly into, I would say, four categories. One is pharmacotherapy, so taking medication. Therapy, so just doing psychotherapy of various modalities. This is often sometimes confused as, you know, some unstructured form of just talking to somebody. That's not what effective psychotherapy is. It is a structured, deliberate mode of treatment that is often as effective as pharmacotherapy. Procedural therapies, these include uh, electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation. And then you have kind of the fourth category, which I would say is a broader sort of access to care sort of realm that just says, okay, how does this person ultimately maintain their functioning? What what gets them through what they're going through now? Are they Where are they in the natural history of the illness? Are they in an acute episode? Are they in a maintenance phase? Are they coming out of an acute episode where they need more support now, but I could imagine that in six weeks they won't? 
And so we have to think about that as well as kind of a mode of treatment because these illnesses, even by their natural history, completely without medication or treatment are often dynamic. You have to think about where the person is. With regard to pharmacotherapy, usually your your biggest concerns there are, am I dealing with an acute episode or is this maintenance? Am I trying to stop something that is acutely distressing the person? And if so, am I going to use something that can segue into a maintenance phase or is this so severe that I'm open to a toolkit that I may not use otherwise because I just need this situation to change right now? And you do that based on clinical judgment of how ill and how dangerous the person is at that moment and also what they're willing to do. But you do have to think about, um, because all of these psychiatric illnesses, if they are a primary psychiatric illness, they are chronic, they are lifelong, and they are often episodic. Meaning, if you start somebody on medication, you have to imagine you are committing them to decades of care. So you have to be very cautious about what am I trying to achieve right now? Do I just need this to stop to keep the person safe? Or are we at a more maintenance phase where I need to think about all the side effects of this medication? Am I going to give the person abnormal movements, involuntary movements, tremor? Are they going to develop metabolic syndrome and have diabetes later in life? Am I going to totally tank their thyroid and kidney function and make this medication unsafe? You you think about it differently at different times. That usually guides your pharmacotherapy. Kind of what is the severity of illness and what am I trying to change? Similar to that, if you get into certain types of severe illness, you may move more towards the procedural route. You may, on an inpatient unit with somebody with severe psychotic depression, ECT is incredibly effective. That may actually be your starting point. If somebody comes to you and you are convinced this is clinically the picture of psychotic depression, they are profoundly ill, and this is totally dominating their life, ECT is extremely effective. Intractable mania, some forms of intractable psychosis, catatonia, all of these things, you may go straight to ECT. If they're an outpatient, you might consider transcranial magnetic stimulation. Less research about it, less well-validated, but it can be done on an outpatient basis and it's more tolerable. Also, the benefit of that is that while you're getting the person better, you can start them on medication that will kind of sustain their less symptomatic state long-term, but you're not relying on the medication to relieve the symptoms immediately. You're using the procedure to do that. Yeah, there's some emerging procedures as well. There, There's some work with vagal nerve stimulation, and there's some talk of implantable deep brain stimulators, but I don't think that's really matured yet. But one thing that's really important to mention about ECT, and I hopefully will get to speak with uh, an expert specifically on that in the near future, is that it works quickly. And especially in the realm of mood disorders, we often will not see results for weeks to up to a month and a half to two months. And that's something that can be really challenging because people are suffering right now, sometimes so badly that they want to end their lives. And we have few tools that can change that. And even in less severe cases, it's often a difficult sell for somebody who's living in the now to say, well, you're going to continue to feel exactly as bad for a while. But if you keep doing this thing, then it might be less bad in the future. And then if you're you know, outside of the pharmacotherapy and the procedural stuff, you can think about various forms of psychotherapy. And oftentimes that's tailored to the particular illness. Some of it is more skill-based and workbook-based. There are many, many, many different kind of schools of thought on how to do effective forms of psychotherapy, but you work on either what you as a practitioner are comfortable with, what has been demonstrated to be most effective in the treatment of what you're targeting, 
and you just work with that within what would be best for the patient. And that's probably like such a broad category that it's its kind of own topic of like how extensive that can be. The fourth thing being the the thought about like what level of care is appropriate for this person. And so it helps to be aware of all the different levels of care. If you're in the emergency room, you're making a decision about do I admit the person or not? Do they need to be in the hospital? But sometimes when you have an outpatient, you might say, is this person doing well enough? to just keep seeing me every month as an outpatient. Do they need psychotherapy? So they need to see me every week or every two weeks, and we'll do that. Other times you may adjust the mode of care based on the perceived risk to the patient. One thing that's very common is that after somebody has the first onset of their severe illness, they will be hospitalized. And in the hospitalization, we'll end up on a lot of medication that is meant to be short-term stabilizing medication. And so sometimes you get them as an outpatient, and you have to say, what is the safe environment to get this person to more sustainable forms of pharmacotherapy? And so you might talk to them about being in a day hospital program for a couple of weeks because the explicit goal is to change a medication they're on and you anticipate there is a high risk for emergence of illness during that period and you want them to be evaluated or you want to see them more frequently at that time. And that changes pretty dynamically. Then when you get into things like mobile treatment teams, assertive community treatment, you're in the realm of people that have chronic debilitating disorders that have significantly impaired their function and independence. And what you are oftentimes explicitly trying to avoid in that context is repeated hospitalization because as a feature of their chronic illness, they will always display symptoms of the illness. So if they were to walk into any emergency room without context, you would think they meet criteria for hospitalization, the truth may be that that doesn't benefit them. If they are not distressed and they're able to basically care for themselves, it is far, far better for them to be in the community, to be with their family, and to be around a support network. And so part of assertive community treatment and mobile treatment is going to meet them where they are and building that network for them. And that, again, highlights the importance of, of collateral information. If you see these patients in the emergency department or I've gotten text messages from patients that sounded very alarming, but once I collected a lot of other information, it turns out that that's just how they're, they are right now, and it's a radical departure from how you might expect somebody to be in the community, but if they are functioning all right, then it does not necessarily benefit them to pull them out and make some changes and put them through the unpleasant experience of being in the hospital for some period of time. And, th and that also comes to, as you get to know somebody longitudinally because you take care of them as an outpatient, you will develop a sense of what their particular illness looks like and what the subtle form of it looks like. So I've taken care of, you know, many people that are chronically psychotic, have hallucinations, that type of thing, and they can describe those experiences, but they don't bother them. They don't act on them. And that may be what being well is for that person. They're, they're fine with that. They experience no distress. It doesn't significantly impact their functioning. But if you were to just assess them for, do they have psychotic features? Yes, at baseline they do. But it's helpful to know that because you also start to learn what is the kind of tipping point for this person when they start to look very ill. This particularly comes up when you have a patient that has a neurocognitive illness on top of their psychiatric illness. Um, in Baltimore, things like childhood lead exposure are not uncommon. Also, people that come from a disrupted educational background where they either move schools, they had unstable housing at some point as a child, so their educational attainment may be a little bit less than you would expect from somebody in a stable environment. It's really good to know that type of thing 
that gives you an impression of what parts of their presentation are actually illness superimposed over that versus what is a stable either learning disability or intellectual disability that's unlikely to change. It's a it's always a balance between you have to get to know everybody longitudinally to learn the intricacies of this and their particular illness to find the right level of care for them at that point. It's something you learn working in the emergency room. You'll have your own outpatients and you get used to kind of what ill looks like for all of them. And then when you work in the emergency room, there's a population of patients that you get to know very well because they live in the community. They don't really seek care but they tend to be brought into the emergency room either by law enforcement or by people thinking that they're behaving erratically. You get to know them very well and you see them and you say, yeah, they have chronic schizophrenia. They're extremely ill. They don't really ever look better than this. They are not distressed. They're not bothered. And usually another caveat there is we've tried it before. We've, we've gone the full route of hospitalization for long periods. We've maximized medications and this person's distress is never lowered beyond what it is now. So what are some of the attitudes that you've run into of like patients and families that have surprised you in particular, anything that you feel that you would want to dispel or inform further for the greater good? Probably the most common one is a resistance to medication. The idea that being on medication will impair a patient. Um, Usually there's this idea that it turns them into a zombie. They don't seem like their old self. This is often compounded by the need to provide a high degree of education to the family and the patient about what treatment looks like and what the goal of treatment really is because oftentimes I think this is this is the fact that there's a discrepancy between what the family and the patient is expecting treatment to achieve versus what you as a clinician and your assessment believe the illness to be and therefore you believe will be achieved through treatment. This is a challenging thing because oftentimes what we know of the natural history of these illnesses is they are lifelong, they are episodic, they're they're difficult to treat. And that doesn't fit with what most patients and their families want in the short term. They want people to feel better. They want to change a pattern of behavior that they find to be distressing or dysfunctional. And that's a huge challenge because they not only want it changed, but they also want it done without medication. And so there's this paradox of trying to convey to them that this is both a very real illness in the classic sense of a medical illness and therefore you know necessitates treatment and part of that treatment may be phar- pharmacotherapy but full treatment because we're talking about thoughts behaviors and feelings it has to do with how the person relates to the world on a spectrum of of our own expectations it's not that i can tell you certain things are just going to go away because that causes distress There are always aspects of people's personal experience in their life that they will assign to illness that in fact are not due to the illness. They're due to personal expectations that have been violated. They're due to discomfort in their own life. They're due to unhappiness in social situations and that that is distinct from mental illness. And so that's a very challenging thing to talk to patients and families about and to kind of get everybody on board with a reasonable set of expectations and then deal with the um, the consequences of medication as well. Another significant thing is kind of the the assessment of danger in these acute situations, particularly one thing I've experienced frequently is people bring a family member to the emergency room. They say, we're very worried. They made these statements about wanting to hurt themselves or even kill themselves. 
And based on the severity of those statements, I may actually have grounds for involuntary hospitalization of that person because I am that concerned about their well-being. And there's often a disconnect between the family's impression of what coming to the hospital would be like and the idea that that could actually be one of the outcomes, that the person would be hospitalized. And this even occurs among non-psychiatric medical providers that will refer patients or either send them to the emergency room for a psychiatric concern or write things in their in their notes, which end up as part of the electronic medical record that we can all see. And when you have that objectively documented, you can feel like there's clearly been some sort of disconnect between the understanding of the severity of these symptoms and what and the risk they represent and what the provider or the family thinks is going to happen. That's a very challenging thing to navigate as a provider. Um, it's also something, though, that I think plays into the stigma of mental illness for a lot of people. So oftentimes it's not a matter of debating the severity or the risk. It's a matter of addressing the discomfort with the notion of being high, of being hospitalized on a psychiatric unit mm-hmm. and explaining that that is it is not a punishment. It is a therapeutic intervention and it is the standard of care. It is actually what the person deserves. It is not something I'm doing to them. They deserve that level of treatment. They deserve the specialized care that occurs through 24-hour psychiatric nursing. These are things I cannot provide outside of the hospital, and they deserve that level of care because of the severity of their illness. And that's a very difficult conversation to have with people sometimes. Yeah, I I think that the idea of struggling with mental illness is intrinsically very difficult for people to process, you know, myself included. We want to believe in free will and all this sort of thing. So the idea that somebody is at such great risk and so far from baseline that they might die of self-inflicted means or uh, or become so psychotic that they can't protect themselves from some other threat, it's deeply disturbing because that means that their their very personhood is being threatened by this illness, which is, you know, I'm not trying to discount the things that you see in internal medicine, Kavita, but the you can have the worst bowel problem, the worst lung problem, et cetera, but your personhood is still intact for the most part. And the, the idea that that is something that is um, at risk here has got to, I think that leads to a lot of the pushback and the stigma that we see. And it puts us in this weird dual role, like you were saying, you know, somebody's seriously ill enough that they come to, or that their family brings them to the hospital. And then we say, okay, well, we're going to do the thing we do about it. And then they're, <laughs> upset because then they have to acknowledge that this is a real thing even though it's invisible let me know if you think this one's worth going into is kind of the relative role of the hospital versus the community because i mean for my part i've always been kind of on this personal crusade that i think we overuse the hospital at least in theory we should be able to use the community to a greater level and if we deployed resources more efficiently we could keep a lot of people out of ever having to get to that point yeah i think um the use of hospitalization in psychiatry is, again, a, a point of confusion between ab- about what the goal of hospitalization is. And oftentimes, hospitalization, as much as we say it's about for safety, it's for stabilization and all these words we use, there's part of it that's fundamentally for diagnostic clarity, and we only get that by having the person in an observed environment around informed staff, including patient care technicians, psychiatric nurses, and these people that we as 
prescribers and physicians completely rely upon that level of reporting of their behavior and their response to their environment to determine what the ultimate best course of care is for the patient. And I think we, we traditionally as physicians undervalue that component of it. And that's really been a limitation in our practice that we, we rely too heavily on our own observation rather than using that as a tool when in fact it's usually what actually necessitates hospitalization far more than safety does. At the same time, I agree with you. We do overuse hospitalization because again, these illnesses are chronic. They're often episodic. You get a lot of people that outside of context would appear as though they need to be hospitalized. And it's always going to be important to weigh that and say, is that really what's necessary right now? Yeah. And and there seems to be such a divide even within medicine. I I run into this all the time in the emergency department that even other medically trained people are so unused to seeing people with these illnesses that they are baffled when we provide the interpretations we do. And something, for example, a patient says they want to kill themselves. And then we say this patient has these conditions and these personality traits Yes, they are chronically at some elevated risk, but they're going to want to kill themselves today as much as they did yesterday and as much as they did tomorrow. So we need to think about a long-term plan rather than trying to keep them in the hospital forever. Yeah, and usually my tipping point is if in the course of the discussion with another provider or with the patient, if the best I can come up with is I would achieve the same therapeutic outcome by putting this person in a prison or locking them in a closet, that's not medicine. It's not psychiatry. Mm. That's not good enough at that point. And I think though, unfortunately, we are so risk averse as a medical culture. We, we jump to hospitalization because it is the thing that we think of as being the safest option. I want to get a medical economist on here at some point to just talk about how much of these, how much of the problems in medicine happen because it's lucrative to do things the wrong way. I mean, if we just jump to hospitalizing as many people as humanly possible, that's great for the hospital administration, but I don't know that it's great for us or the patients or the psychiatric nurses or the psychiatric uh, care staff aside from them. The economics of psychiatric care are usually, well, it's, it's something that's worth exploring further at another time because, again, due to the chronicity of these illnesses, it often forces you to think on a time frame that most economic systems don't operate on. When you're talking about people that are psychiatrically hospitalized, approximately 95 to 96% of all people diagnosed with a psychiatric illness will never be hospitalized in their life. Like We are talking about a a small percentage of people that are engaged in psychiatric care. But when you are dealing with that population, due to the chronicity of the illness, and what it does to their overall level of function, you're dealing with a population that requires a high level of care, a high allotment of resources, but also is fundamentally unable to provide for themselves and compensate the system for those resources. And I don't think they should be ever be held accountable for that. I don't think that they should be required to do that. But it is a reality of serving that population that the typical economics by which the modern American medical system works is not geared to accommodate that situation. Yeah. This is one of the cases where it really lays bare the oddity of tying medical care to employment. Because by definition, if you have a severe mental illness, you are going to be at best employed at a level that is less than the capability you might have expected to have. 
I mean that in no way to take away from the people with severe mental illness who are still out there working in whatever way they can. But the idea that your worthiness to be taken care of by the system is some in some way tied to your employee productivity is nonsensical when you're dealing with illnesses that can take this away from you in many cases in the prime of your life. That's one of the weird things about like spending a good deal of your time interacting with psychotic people is the idea that we have this like <laughs> conspiracy theory thing is just beyond me because I'm like, no, the the reality of the world has far like eclipsed that sort of thing. And sometimes <laughs> it's almost refreshing to talk to profoundly delusional people because it's like it's a self-contained sort of oddity of their experience. And there's something about it that's it's so intimate to their life that it almost has a value to it in that way. Mm. And there's no maleficence in it. Like, and then you have these people that are out there, you know, saying like, you know, school shootings didn't happen and stuff like that. Yeah. Which. Yeah. And that's something that I don't, I don't even know who we would reach out to, to, to discuss that topic. But the <laughs> idea of like this, this line between criminal behavior and mm-hmm. mentally ill behavior, that's something that when we talk to Dr. Nestat mm-hmm. about uh, guns and suicide and these kinds of things. Yeah, school shootings and mass shootings and and serial killing and all these things are absolutely bizarre because they like to invoke mental illness as a way to sort of smokescreen away from other politically charged issues. Mm -hmm. But yeah, truly, people with antisocial personality disorder are not the people who we see, typically. Maybe in forensic psychiatry, but if somebody is just a sociopath and does not have another mental illness that debilitates them directly, we're never going to see him inside the walls of our um, psychiatric hospital. And that's uh, just a quick aside to the idea that people are often afraid of people with schizophrenia because the way they're portrayed in society Mm -hmm. and the statistics do show that it is far more likely that they will be victims of violence than they are perpetrators of violence. Like in, in my case, I don't know if I ever talked about this on the podcast, but the time I got a cabinet door thrown at me on the street, <laughs> I didn't hold it against the guy because I don't think he knew who I was. I don't know that he knew what a cabinet door was at the time. In fact, he was apologizing to me right afterwards. So it, this is a very, very different situation than somebody who is going into a place with hatred in their heart and mm-hmm. trying to take lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's often a challenge in psychiatry that somebody's um, dysregulated behavior represents a danger to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. And the others part is always, um, it's more compelling when it comes to things like saying the person must be hospitalized, that we will compel them to receive treatment even against their will, that type of thing. But it's a very ethically challenging question when it comes to your role as a physician and remembering that psychiatrists are primarily physicians. So you have first and foremost, a duty to the person in front of you. You are to treat the suffering and deviation from well-being of the individual in front of you at that moment. Psychiatry doesn't always get to do that in a clear cut way because we have to worry about other people. We become by extension, we're required to do risk assessments of how we think our patients' behavior could influence the lives of other people. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really challenging to incorporate into the like broader philosophy of medicine because we struggle enough to figure out how do you actually treat the well-being of an individual person, much less treat the individual in front of you with the intention of influencing the well-being of everybody around them. That's a totally different question that medicine has no great answer for how we actually do that functionally or ethically. I think it's a problem that's unique to psychiatry because we're aware of this, because we deal with disorders that are dysregulation of behavior. We actually have to address it because we see the repercussions of the behavior of somebody suffering from these illnesses. By and large, they are not a threat to anybody, Mm -hmm. but at times they can be. Yeah, I mean, by its very nature, almost everything in the purview of medicine, aside from infectious disease, I suppose, affects you far more than the people around you. Whereas in psychiatry, certainly, um, if you're going to enter into a state where you no longer can differentiate fantasy from reality and are acting in ways that are dangerous, yeah. Yeah, and it's a challenge, too, because if the highest level of psychiatric care is inpatient hospitalization. So we bring somebody into the hospital, but that means they're on a unit with 15 to 19 to 20 other people that are extremely vulnerable, suffering from similar illness, and the dysregulation of behavior of any one of those people can influence the well-being of everybody else. That's an extremely unique situation to medicine where your alliance is not 100% to the patient in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, and as an aside on that topic, I will shamelessly shout out to the psychiatric nurses and security personnel because they are putting themselves at risk constantly for the well-being of people who may not appreciate it at the time and may never appreciate it. But I think it's a job that is incredibly valuable and i don't know that we frequently enough get to tell them that they are valued to us yeah truthfully we work for them more than any hospital administration that i've ever encountered absolutely so i think we covered a lot of this idea of paternalism in psychiatry and yeah this idea that one is in this very challenging position of having to treat somebody who doesn't always want to be treated which is not foreign to other forms of medicine, but is almost part and parcel to some of our illnesses. What are some of the barriers that people face when trying to access psychiatric care? I know personally, I uh, noticed that a lot of patients who I want to see a psychiatrist, they have long wait times. And I'm sure there are a lot of other barriers that you are about to discuss with us. Yeah. So the long wait times are a huge part of it because there's this issue of... uh, referring somebody into outpatient psychiatric care, which as we discussed before, is the appropriate level of care for the vast majority of people suffering with a psychiatric illness. And then they're told that there's a very long wait time. That can be disappointing to a lot of people. It also makes them feel as though they're unheard, as though nobody is trying to address their suffering. It's also a difficult thing to address because ultimately the treatment of psychiatric illness often occurs in the time span of months. And this is not to excuse the system in any way whatsoever. The reality is everybody that should, everybody that wishes to speak to a psychiatrist or a mental health professional should be able to do so within a week or two would be my goal. That is also difficult given that the resolution of symptoms and the therapy for psychiatric illness often occurs on a time span of months. 
And that's a frustrating thing because somebody takes months to get to you and then it takes months to get better. And that's a huge barrier to care. Another barrier to care is a lack of understanding on, I wouldn't even say that it's other providers. It's not other healthcare practitioners. It's the general kind of attitude and of the broader medical system that we are used to people getting better quickly. Psychiatric illness does not get better quickly. Even on an inpatient unit, even on a consult service, we are talking about interventions that take weeks to take place unless I'm dealing with the profoundly ill and I'm recommending emergent ECT or something of that nature. That's a totally different thing. But the vast majority of psychiatric illness, we are talking about weeks to months of of care to achieve resolution of symptoms. And that is often something that the system and other practitioners don't tolerate. And that person, then it turns into a barrier to patients because they are given an inaccurate representation of what engagement and care will be like. Yeah. And we're at the mercy of these bizarre and outdated billing systems in a lot of cases, because like we know for a fact that if if somebody comes to me with a severe depressive illness, I give them the best medication for them. They're probably not going to be much better in a week. Now, if I don't discharge them in a week, then somebody in charge of managing the hospital resources might very well be upset about that. But it's inherently kind of incongruent with the timelines of our treatments. Another difficulty in all of that is that because there's such an overlap between the presentation of a psychiatric illness and the distress that somebody feels, oftentimes their perception of relief is different than what we will perceive like treatment of their illness to be. So they want to feel better as quickly as possible. They want to feel heard. They want to feel taken care of. And oftentimes we, although we can do that, we can convey that we're listening. We can convey empathy to them. It is not as closely tied to a sense of relief as most forms of medical care are. And that's a very difficult thing to not only explain to patients, but also um, kind of guide them through as they experience that as a component of their illness longitudinally. And so it's something that the responsibility falls on us to ultimately maintain a therapeutic alliance through that experience with them. And it's not something that honestly all providers are equipped to do. I've just noticed that in a couple of my my personal patients that there's a lot a lot more emphasis on role setting, a lot more emphasis on that aspect of communication of what they're likely to experience from resolution of symptoms. That plays into an element of kind of education about mental illness broadly. Because these illnesses are chronic and they do not resolve quickly, people often come to the emergency room because they have progressed to a state of crisis and they come to the emergency room because they expect an intervention which will alleviate the crisis. Oftentimes, our tools for that are very blunt and the true longitudinal care of that person is the same as it would have been if they had come in three months previously. It is pharmacotherapy combined with psychotherapy combined with you know, a therapeutic alliance with a good outpatient team. And all these things present a barrier to people actually coming in and in seeking care because oftentimes it takes a long time for them to do that. And then when they do it, they feel like they weren't heard. Again, the responsibility for that falls on us to function not only as physicians, but also as educators when it comes to that and to prepare people for what the experience of their illness is likely to be like, which we have much more experience being able to to prepare them for 
all stages of recovery than they do as somebody that experienced the illness. And that sounds terrible because in a way it plays into that paternalism of like, I know your experience better than you, but what I know as a physician who's treated depression, I know what depression looks like when it gets better. And I know what it looks like when it's treated. Somebody that's actively depressed often really struggles to know what it looks like when it's treated and what it looks like to know when it's getting better. Yeah. It globally makes the world look so bleak that trying to convince someone actively suffering from an acute episode that they're ever going to get better is nearly impossible in most cases. At least that's what I've found. Yeah. Another big barrier to patients is um, there's an inherent division between the psychotherapy and the pharmacology side of things. This is partly... I mean, no, it's partly I'm being polite. Um, it's mainly due to the mechanism for reimbursement through hospitals and outpatient care centers. As a psychiatrist, you largely function as a prescriber, and some systems even use that word to describe what you are. You do brief med checks with people, and you prescribe their medication because within your world of mental health care, that is your unique aspect. You can prescribe medication. And that sets up a disconnect between the person prescribing medication for your illness and the person that is guiding your psychotherapy. And that may be a psychologist, a social worker, a psychiatrist, if you're paying out of pocket or you're seeing a resident. The chance you're doing longitudinal psychotherapy with a psychiatrist outside of those two situations is very uncommon. So that also presents a barrier to people because they come in and they inherently feel like their care is fractured. They have trouble... Very, very understandably, like they, they have trouble reconciling that the medication is in concert with the psychotherapy they're receiving. And they oftentimes feel the psychotherapy is the more like relevant part of the therapeutic alliance because it's somebody that talks to them directly that knows their experience. And then meanwhile, the person that's prescribing the drugs that have all the side effects like uh, make them nauseous, diminish their sex drive, give them anorgasmia, all of these things weight gain, prediabetes, all these things that they can't tolerate at all feels like it's a separated aspect of their of their experience in being treated for this illness. And I think that's a fundamental problem at a systems level that psychiatrists have been removed from that because in the quest for more consistent compensation for the administration of medical care under a fundamentally profit-driven system the most efficient role for a psychiatrist is as a prescriber. And I can say, as somebody who's almost to the end of the most outpatient heavy block of training, that the difference between my relationship with the patients that I only see for medication in um, some of my clinics and the ongoing patients that I see for therapy and a medication and really everything they need, it is completely night and day. I mean, I could talk to you at great length about any of my longitudinal patients and I feel like they are truly like my patients many of them text me at all hours and I don't have any problem getting back to them because I know them and I feel like I can actually help them whereas to be put in this position of just medicating for them I barely know some of these people and unfortunately and I'm ashamed to say that but I just don't have that connection and I don't feel like I'm able to be engaged in their care in the way that I'd like to be. And yeah, that's unfortunately, if we were just trying to grind out the most dollars per me, they'd have me doing a hundred percent Medicaid and evaluate. Yeah. And, th and that becomes challenging too. When you get the patients that are on a medication regimen that was 
intended for stabilization and you're trying to make that clinical decision of it's time to transition into a maintenance phase where they'll have medications with less side effects and all that sort of thing. They need somebody that knows them that well and is that integrated into the pattern of care. And in many outpatient practices, that communication is simply not there for them. It's not that it's totally absent. There are practices that have managed to achieve an appropriate balance between, like, even though psychiatrists provide primarily a prescriber role, they are still intimately in touch with therapists and psychologists and people that are actually doing the more direct one-on-one psychotherapy with the patients and they have that level of communication to coordinate care but so many patients struggle with the fact the system is fundamentally fractured and this also comes uh, comes about too from the tendency of mental mental health services within the insurance compensation realm are often segregated from physical insurance and so there's this treatment as though mental health is something fundamentally different from internal medicine and other physical ailments and there are some reasons to do that due to the chronicity of illness due to its episodic nature and due to the fact that many people even with appropriate treatment will remain symptomatic so it's different in some ways but unfortunately the tendency to break off coverage has also limited us in that way because it means that you can sell people insurance plans that have adequate physical health coverage and virtually no mental health benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And that's further twisted by the fact that if somebody has a severe enough mental health problem, they're no longer going to be an employee and therefore it becomes a very different question. That's terrible. Uh, thank you for going through a lot of the limitations and barriers that people face with getting psychiatric care. My last question to end on a slightly more hopeful note is for both of you, Cody and Adam, say that you're in charge of a community and or whoever's in charge of that community, the mayor or the governor of that state or city tells you, I have a generous amount of funding and it is yours to reshape psychiatric care however you think is most important. What are one or two or a few things that you would think of changing uh, compared to what we have currently? I feel like this is, you know, it's a hypothetical of saying that we we have enough funding to do this. But basically, yeah. I would I would make it so that um, nobody, regardless of their state of illness, whether it be physical, psychiatric, or any any conception of illness that we have, is responsible to provide for their own basic needs. And I think we, if we came to the point where as, as collectively as a community, we provided for the basic needs of those within our community and around us, and we were able to say, you were entitled to a basic level of health, you're entitled to shelter, you were entitled to education, to power your own autonomy, and to make decisions in the world, and we said that that was our priority, that would be the, the greatest step towards um, empowering mental health care. Because much of what we struggle with, ultimately, is as people are experiencing illness and they experience the consequences of those illness, we have to balance effective treatment of the illness as we understand it with its functional consequences. And that often is a is a huge limitation to us because we encounter people that require inpatient substance use treatment in order to ultimately deal with a profound debilitating substance use disorder. And they can't do that because they're required to work. You have people that have to drive their children to school so they can't be depressed. It isn't allowed for them to experience their illness. And there's a point where 
you conceptualize it two ways. You could either say, like, well, this is this is an entitlement program, which I freely admit that it is. You are you are allowing people to exist with their basic needs met despite their contribution to society. I would say, I will take a society that values that over somebody that penalizes people for illness. I would much rather we tolerate the exploitation and the potential abuse of that system than we do, then we tell people that they are not allowed to be sick. And I think that globally would actually impair, or rather would empower our mental health care system far more than any direct intervention in mental health care itself. It would be dis- disentangling somebody's basic well-being from their their obligation to consistently conform and function within whatever society has decided at that time. Well, disappointingly, I don't know that I'm going to depart too much from that because I would echo that awesome. I I would change very little about the way we do our actual hospital care. Sure, we could use some more resources. We could spruce things up. We could afford to um, maybe compensate uh, people a little better, maybe have a little bit thicker support on the ground for constant observation and these kinds of things. But it truly does come down to the community support. And it is absolutely tragic the number of people where they come in and they're actually doing everything they can, but just the struggles at the most basic level that I can't even comprehend trying to live at that level. Like, how can I expect somebody to give a damn about the medication I want to give them when they can't figure out how to get here to the clinic? They can't figure, they just don't have the resources. I mean, they know how. Or they don't have the, or they don't have shelter, or they're worried about the safety of themselves or their children. I think it ultimately does become very much a, um, how do we want to care for people who are having a bad time? It's not really about specific mental illnesses for the most part. I mean, I, I would even be somewhat more strongly worded than that. That I think that any any system in which we place a penalty upon being ill or choosing to start a family and be pregnant is fundamentally contrary to life and well-being and therefore is actively cruel and i think there's a we've shifted the goalpost on this quite a bit where we actually we see it as we're not doing well enough as opposed to we are actively participating in cruelty when we fail to meet these basic standards yeah i mean we're we're at a place where in many ways we have the technology to make many forms of scarcity a thing of the past, but we are choosing not to by the way we distribute those resources. Yeah. And I, I say that as somebody too, that, you know, wants to be an academic, I want to, I want to do basic science research. I studied fruit flies and cell culture and did really esoteric, bizarre experiments and stuff like that. And, and truthfully, like none of that work that I did would influence this culture and bring about well-being to, other people nearly as much as us improving access to care and establishing a reasonable, reasonable, basic, just fundamental level of existence that we would provide for in the society. Yeah. And that's something that's been eye-opening to me as well with my science background is that it is exciting, sure, to see what we are capable of at the fringes of resource uh, intensivity. But... There's so much low-hanging fruit. There's so, and that's something I, I like to try and come back to as much as we can on this podcast. Like, there are a lot of problems that are scientifically long since solved, but we just haven't deployed these resources, and it's it's tragic. Yeah, I think you guys really hit on one of the main things that we've probably learned in residency, I, especially with our community of patients in Baltimore. 
there are so many people like you said, Cody and Adam, that changing their medicines isn't going to change as much as uh, helping them feel safe or helping them have a stable house or a um, adequate supply of food um, to last them every week. And so I often find that I'm making changes or adjustments in what the ideal treatment would be for something like blood pressure because somebody can't afford medicine or somebody can't afford to eat food that's healthy and low in salt. I think that disease definitely impacts people who have lower socioeconomic status, lower resources, uh, more disproportionately, more often than it does people who have more, which is kind of a direct example of giving everyone more resources probably will help everyone be healthier. And it's a pretty eye-opening experience the first time you write a prescription that says, uh, take nightly with dinner, and a patient tells you, I don't eat dinner nightly. That's, you know, that's the reality of this. It just goes to show you the disconnect. As much as they try and talk about social influences of health and all this business, in many ways we're at a point where we need to be sure that the knowledge we have is getting into places where it can help people. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. We learned so much, and I'm very hopeful and excited for everyone listening to learn a lot from this podcast as well. I feel like I got an inside look at how psychiatrists approach treating patients, talking to patients, making diagnoses, and what some of your thoughts are on things beyond just basic diagnosis and treatment and how we can improve mental health care access for everyone and improve sort of the outcomes that people experience when they're undergoing treatment. Yeah. Thanks very much for uh, showing up. I like uh, being able to speak with somebody who's got essentially the same training as I do, but sees the world in such a different way. It's a, it's a good perspective to have. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you guys found that interesting. Uh, for more of Humanity Against Disease, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and at www.humanityagainstdisease.com. And we'd certainly love to hear from you on any of those platforms. You can also send us an email at againstdisease at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.